So I'm five years old. Five years old, my first train ride that I can remember. It's at a place called Gatorland. Anybody ever been to Gatorland? Yeah. So it's at Gatorland, and because I was one of those um, kids that was really blessed to have teenage parents. Some of you, some of you probably did not have teenage parents. Uh, and my parents have given me the freedom to share this because it's my story. It's my journey. So whenever, you know, you know Pastor Sidney's talking about, you know, politicians and ads on TV, whenever they're, they're having ads on TV that trees have souls and blobs of tissue are waiting on a woman to decide, I'm really glad that my mom never saw one of those TV commercials because she was 14. She was 14 years old. And she ran away from a small town in the Midwest to Orlando, Florida, where my father, they're both teenagers, where he could get a job. And by God's grace, when she was old enough to sign, she got married. And so I was one of those people that had a really, I mean, just an incredible childhood because when you have teenage parents, you don't have rules. It's a really cool thing. <laughs> I'll bet some of you had curfews, didn't you? Not one time in my life, at least till I got married, have I ever had a curfew. <laughs> my wife did not have teenage parents, so she understood rules and responsibility. And, and, and she said, you never had a curfew? Never one time had a curfew. Because I had teenage parents, and, and, and because it was like, you know, we're all growing up together. My dad's 16 years older than me. So if, if I wanted little Debbie's for supper, guess what I had for supper? I had little Debbie and all of her sisters. I mean, I, ha I would have the whole, the whole box of little Debbies. I can remember vividly my 11th birthday. I, I, I begged him. I said, Mom, Daddy, I need, I need a gun. And now in Kentucky, where I was born, I mean, you're, you know, when, when you're like in the crib, they're bringing you know, guns and knives and, you know, the things that small children need, right? And so all my cousins up in Kentucky, they've got guns, and they've got big knives, and they've got, you know, I mean, and I'm in Orlando just feeling just, just naked. I mean, I have no weapons to defend myself. <laughs> Eleven years old, they said, well, we're going to test it out. We're going to get you a Daisy Pump BB rifle. I had that gun. It was beautiful one day because the neighbors had this big plate glass window, and I thought, I wonder if this... No, this doesn't have the range to make it. It did have the range. I, those Daisy BB guns get the job done, I'm telling you. So I grew up with, with parents who loved me, and because they knew that they didn't know all of the dysfunction. I mean, I know some of you, I know Thanksgiving is coming, and you think that your family put the fun in dysfunction, you know, because around the holidays it just gets wacky. My parents... So, I mean, you know, the fun and dysfunction, you've ever heard that before? My parents ran away from all that. They said, you know what? We want to give you a different chance. Thank God they ran away. One out of 100 teenage marriages make it. My mom and daddy were the one. And so I grew up with these parents who knew enough to know they didn't know. And I want you to know that's valuable. To know enough about what you don't know. I mean, sometimes when I'm, you know, I'm an executive coach part of the week, and I'm working with businessmen who've been very successful, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll draw like a circle, and I'll say, if this represents all the knowledge in the world, please tell me how much you know. And, and, and sometimes these are extremely successful guys. 
and I'll say, just put in percentages. If the whole circle represents 100%, how much do you know? And sometimes they'll say, you know, like 15%. I'll say, really? How do you drop the transmission out of a 72 Buick? And they'll say, well, I don't know that. And then I'll start saying, you know, can you please talk to me about stem cell research and what you would do if you're doing brain surgery? Can you please talk to me about, you know, the Andromeda galaxy? And they'll say, okay, Dwight, fine. I don't know 15% of all the knowledge in the world. And I'll say, you know what, when you start to look at it, the greatest danger isn't what you know, it's what you don't know that you don't know. Yes, my mom and daddy still gave me another weapon. So later that year, I got a 410 shotgun single shot. That way you can't do too much damage, you know. If you get one foot, you at least have another foot that you can, you know, make it through life with. <laughs> they knew enough to know that they didn't know. So here's a challenge for you this morning. What do you not know? Because I'm talking about relationships. What do you not know? Now here's a scary challenge for you. Yes, the holidays are coming. If you don't learn something like my parents, and I'll tell you their secret in a moment, but if you don't learn something different, it's really easy to see, particularly to those of you here who are younger. It's really easy to see what your future will look like. Look at your mom and dad, because your marriage will become their marriage. Your life will become their life. You understand how it works. The fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Or another version of that, when you shake the family tree, in, in, in some families, all that falls out are nuts. I mean, you know, it depends. My mom and dad knew they did not know. So every day of my life, from age three on, age three, they went to a Billy Graham crusade, and it changed my dad. It changed our home. They dedicated me to the Lord at a Billy Graham crusade. I don't remember it, but I remember them telling me about it. But I do know that every day growing up, they had Christian broadcasting on in their home because they knew they didn't know. They knew they didn't know. The danger is when you think you know. By the way, even though I did grow up with guns, my wife forbade our children to have weapons. I, I say they're, they're naked in the world. They, they need to have that because growing up now, if you don't know what you're doing with a weapon, you will blow your foot off. You will hurt yourself. My mom and dad knew that they didn't know, so they had Christian broadcasters on. J. Vernon McGee, J. Harold Smith, of course, Billy Graham, and a guy named Clyde Naramore, who was the founder of the Foundation for Christian Living, and he had a radio show called Psychology for Living. So when I'm nine years old, because they had it on every day, I mean, they did two things. I guess I should say three. They went to church, but, but every day they had Christian broadcasting on. Every week we went to the library because they knew they didn't know. They didn't finish high school. And if you know that you don't know, you can do something about it. They knew that if you don't change, you become your parents. You become your family of origin. Listen to me. It's all you can be. You don't have any choice. You're either going to become like your culture, you're going to become like your family of origin. But the good news is there is a third option. You can become the man, the woman. You can have the marriage that God designed, but you cannot do that if you take God out of the equation. Can't be done. Can't be done. It's what I call train wrecks. So my mom and dad, five years old, 
I'm, 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 I'm a, a proud student in the Sky Lake Kitty College. I had good self-esteem because they told me every day of my life I was loved. It wasn't until I was 11 years old, a family member called me a word I won't repeat in mixed company, that I was the blank child. And I didn't know what the word meant because I never heard it because my mom and dad said there will be no cussing in this house, there will be no alcohol in this house. While there were no rules about curfews or Little Debbie cakes, there were lots of rules about alcohol and cussing. I can tell you exactly what ivory soap tastes like. <laughs> I've tasted it twice. Didn't care for it either time. And so I'm five years old, and I'm just kind of a, uh, I guess, a shy kid, you know, toehead, blonde hair, on a field trip from the kindergarten that they put me into. And I'll never forget, I'm picked to come to the front of the line to ride in with the engineer of a train at Gatorland that no longer exists. It was my first train ride. Train rides, if they're on a round track around a thousand hungry alligators and you don't fall in, is a pretty cool deal. I'm assuming if you fall in, it's not as entertaining. Well, maybe it's more entertaining when you think about it. I mean, you know, you know take, take, take a friend of, you know, or a family member to Gatorland that you don't like. Whoops, oh, baby, I'm sorry. <laughs> I told you not to get too close to the rail. <laughs> a train ride on a safe, predictable track is kind of entertaining. Think of the train at Walt Disney World, right? But about a month ago, my wife and I got to ride on our first real train. And it was out in Missouri, in Branson. And it was a dinner deal, and, and they had an observation car, and we have dinner, and I mean, it's this long train ride, and we had the best time. But then in the back of my mind, I remembered my friend R.C. Sproul had been on a train, because he doesn't like planes, and he'd been on a train that had crashed over a river, and he and his wife lost everything that they were traveling with and almost died. You see, a train wreck, train wrecks get you killed. You know, right now, by God's grace, our life is pretty stable and secure. We didn't get Hurricane Sandy. Part of this last week, I was talking to my friends in Staten Island who don't have houses today because train wrecks, the storms of life, knock you down. If you don't know what you believe, you'll stay down. Here's the good news. They're having church this morning at Gateway Cathedral in Staten Island where they didn't get government help, where they didn't get a lot of things, but they said, you know what, even though one of the pastors lost his home, 100%, it's not there anymore. One of the other pastors, his home was seriously damaged, but he said, we'll have church because we know what we believe. If you know what you believe and life knocks you down, you can get back up. If you don't know what you believe, you become your parents, you become the culture. So I'm going to tell you a story this morning about the most popular television show, number two most popular television show of all time. The TV show is called I Love Lucy. How many people have seen I Love Lucy? All right. Lucy, I'm home, right? And the TV show was built around the idea that here's this goofball woman who creates problems, and then here's her husband who solves problems. You know, it's like a little boy who came up to his daddy and said, Daddy, how much does marriage cost? And he said, son, I don't know. I'm still paying. <laughs> a lot of you can relate to that, can't you? How much does it cost? I'm still paying. Still paying. You remember the old you know, Jetsons TV show? You know, he was holding out a dollar, and here's his wallet. You know, and Jane Jetson takes the whole wallet. It's like, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. The I Love Lucy television show was on for six seasons. 
Four of the six seasons, it was the most popular show on television, which is just staggering when you think about it. Still, 40 million people every year watch it. What most people don't realize is the only reason they did the TV show is because their marriage was in such trouble. She'd already filed for divorce. Lucille said, I'm tired of the alcohol. I'm tired of all the girlfriends. I'm done. She'd already filed. He came up with the idea, because television was a new concept in 1950, he came up with the idea, what if we did a TV show, made you the star, because she'd been a, a movie star, and they had met in entertainment, and they were smitten with each other. They had fireworks, they had chemistry, but in doing extensive research, I have yet to find that they had anything that you and I would call faith. He said, don't divorce me. If we do this TV show, I'll, I'll come off the road, We'll do a TV show. We'll call it I Love Lucy. It'll be great, and it'll give us a way to be together. And she said, all right, I'll try one more thing. How many women can relate to the idea of being in a relationship, a train wreck relationship, and hearing, you know, one more promise? I've been a counselor 30 years. I've seen people, you know, lay their final deal out on the table, and, and, and then it, in two weeks it's the next final deal. And she said, I've already, you know, I've done this hundreds of times. This is the last time. And he said, I, I, I promise. Yeah, but if, if you don't have any faith, your promise is about as good as whew, air. It just doesn't last. Because it can't, because we're flawed, selfish humans. So they do the TV show. Very, very popular. And here's the irony. It became so popular, they had 100 employees, 200 employees, 300 employees, they became one of the most profitable film studios in Hollywood because I Love Lucy was shot on, on film. It wasn't shot on video. That's why you can still watch it today, and it's very crisp. It was the first TV show to do that, the first TV show to be able to use a three-camera shoot. I mean, it, they revolutionized things, and as they had more money and more staff, because he'd never gotten any help for it, guess what happened to Desi, a.k.a. Ricky, Back to the alcohol, back to the girlfriends, even though at this point in time, you know, in today's dollars, it'd be the equivalent of more than $100 million a year of income. Money was not their problem. Multiple houses, vacation homes, cars, lifestyle, not their problem. Enough money to last a lifetime. Still, you know, Lucy and Desi have been gone for a long time. Their great-grandchildren will never have to work. Money was not their problem, but they had a bigger problem. It was a train wreck because they had nothing to keep their relationship together. After six years, he went back to his old ways, and she said, I'm done. I Love Lucy was canceled. One of the few shows ever to be the number one show on TV when, when the people producing it said, um, we're not going to work anymore. How many people quit at number one? She said, I'm done. CBS convinced her to come back and do the Lucy Desi comedy hour, but it wasn't much fun. When the last show was taped, she already had the divorce papers drawn up, signed here, and they were divorced. Now, here's the weird thing. They talked to each other after the divorce almost every single day. When he was dying with cancer, she was there. They still liked each other. They just couldn't live together. There was nothing to hold that relationship together. It was a train wreck. So here's the deal. If you have a fire, should you pour gasoline on that fire to put it out? Or water, what do you think? Water, right? And for a lot of people, they've got a lot of friction in a relationship 
but they don't have anything to put the fire out. That's best illustrated, I believe, by country music. Here are some actual lyrics. I am not making these up. Yes, for the singers here. Get your tongue. These are actual lyrics. I am not making this up. Get your tongue out of my mouth because I'm kissing you goodbye. Her teeth was stained, but her heart was pure. <laughs> not making these up. How can I miss you if you will not go away? <laughs> I don't know whether to kill myself or go bowling. <laughs> I still miss you, baby, but my aim is getting better. Yeah, that's on the back of a pickup. I wouldn't take her to a dog fight because I'm afraid she'd win. Mama, get a hammer. There's a fly on Papa's head. You are the reason our kids are so ugly. <laughs> it's an actual song from Loretta Lynn. I mean, the, I looked it up. Conway Twitty, Loretta Lynn. You're the reason our kids are so ugly, little darling. Oh, but looks ain't everything and money ain't everything, but I still love you just the same. That's an actual song lyric. Not to be outdone, Billy Curlington said, I want you to love me like my dog does, baby. When I come home, I just want you to go crazy because he never looks at me like he might hate me. <laughs> I mean, these are actual lyrics. Went to bed at 2 with a 10, woke up at 10 with a 2. I mean, you know, when you think about country lyrics, don't they reflect train wrecks? A lot of chemistry. Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name, right? <laughs> because a train wreck relationship is just built on chemistry. And chemistry can be a beautiful thing. Fireworks going off can be a beautiful thing. The unfortunate thing, if the fireworks are going off inside your house, not so beautiful. And we've all seen situations, I mean, I'm a big fan of the TV show Mythbusters. And my son and I had a chance to meet Adam and Jamie backstage at an event and they're more cool in person than they are on the show because their favorite thing is blowing stuff up and, and actually testing myths. It's a science show, and, and it's just really interesting because on a lot of things, you know, it just, you don't, you don't think it'll blow up, but it'll blow up. Now, they do that for science, but I want you to know that in a relationship, in a relationship, if you're in a train wreck kind of relationship, there's nothing fun about it. I've been a crisis counselor a long time, and I can tell you that it may be exciting to watch it blow up, but if you're the guy who has to come and clean it up, that's a lot of work. It's really tough. So when I think about train wrecks, Lucy and Desi were a train wreck. They divorced. It wasn't a real relationship, even though it looks like one on TV. There was another couple on that TV show. Remember Ethel and Fred? You know, and I would call that a roommate relationship. They're together, but they don't really like each other. In fact, because my wife is so addicted to that TV show and watches it continually, and it's like, you've seen it eight times. You have the box DVD set. I got you for Christmas. Why are we still watching it? You know, if I've seen a show once, I don't really know that I need to see it again. I already saw what happened. I know how the book ends. I don't have to read that book. I want to go on to the next one. Ethel and Fred, they didn't like each other very much, not just on the show. In real life, because, you know, remember, at the end of the day, it's just a business. So in real life, when, when, when Lucy and Desi said, we're off TV, they said, well, you know, Vivian Vance, would you like to work? And, and, and she said, I'm not working with him ever. I didn't like him in person. I don't like him on the show. It's just a job to me. I call that a roommate relationship. And there are some people that reflects their marriage. 
They each do their job. Here's what I have to do. Check, 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 check. They don't like each other. They don't like each other at all. And a roommate relationship may go the distance on paper. They may stay married because, you know, it's, you know marriage is grand. Divorce is 100 grand. It's, it's cheaper to keep her. You know, that, that kind of thinking, right? And for some people, it's like, you know what? I'll just, you know, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just be roommates. We'll just be roommates. Okay, remember, while that may work from a business perspective, you won't find that as a biblical perspective. Because God's design for marriage is that it would be so unique that people would say, how do you guys make this work? There's no way you guys can make this work. I mean, you stay together, but you seem to like each other. How do you do that? And that the answer would be, let me tell you about my faith. That's what we call covenant relationship. You see, if you make the promise to a person, the person's going to tick you off. You know, it's like the bumper sticker that said, today's not your day, tomorrow's not looking very good either. You know, if you just base it on persons and personality, it's not going to last because we're all selfish people. I mean, we're all kind of pretty selfish people. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you're selfish. I mean, just try it. Try it. It'll feel good. Some of you are related to each other. Now, now turn to somebody on the other side and say, you're more screwed up. Okay, try that one. I'm telling you, you shake the family tree, nuts fall out. When I think about this idea of train wreck relationships, yeah, that's, that's Lucy and Ricky. They were on TV. It looked like a real relationship, but it wasn't. But one of my fondest memories on an afternoon in March 1984, I sat on the front porch of Doris Hamner's home in Schuyler, Virginia. If you don't know the name Doris Hamner, you know her son, Earl Hamner, a.k.a. John Boy. And in Schuyler, Virginia, he wrote a story. He was actually a writer. He was from a family of six. In the mountains of Appalachia, in the Blue Ridge, they were, they were dirt poor. I mean, their town was about the size of this room. Their house was, was not even the size of hardly where I'm standing. It was just a tiny place. But her son, Earl, wrote a story called The Homecoming. It was a CBS television special for Thanksgiving. It was a Christmas special, but it aired Thanksgiving 1977. And people... In 1977, went, wow. And it was a story about a dad in the Great Depression who had nothing. But he went and worked a job and was riding and hitching a ride back on a, on a train to try to get home for Christmas. He had nothing, but he had found a way to get tiny little presents for his kids. And I think every dad could relate to that. I mean, what would you give up so your kid had something on Christmas Day? It wasn't just a heartwarming kind of Hallmark movie. It was transformational. America resounded and said, we like this story. But remember, the Waltons, which is the name of the TV show that spun off the homecoming, the Waltons were mostly true stories. Ike Gotzi's store, been there. And when I first got to Ike Gotzi's store, they said, you know, the real Mrs. Walton, Mrs. Hamner, she just lives right there. She loves visitors. She's old. The kids are all grown and gone, but she loves visitors. And I went over, 
knocked on the door, introduced myself, and said, Mrs. Hamner, I'm Dwight Bain. I'm studying to be a Christian counselor at Liberty University, and I would like to ask you the secret of your family's success. And she said, there's no secret to our success. I said, ma'am, America sits down every Thursday night. The show was still on the air back then. And, and, and through, a, through a TV show that I used to be on, I've met the entire cast of the Waltons, the, the people that played on TV, not the real family. But that day, it was the real Mrs. Hamner. And I said, I, I know there's a secret. And she said, there's no secret. She poured me a glass of iced tea, and we sat down, had a conversation. And I said, well, you know, how did you guys stay together through the Great Depression? How did you stay together through World War II? I mean, there were times where literally... They had no money, and I know everybody says they have no money. They had no money like no food. I said, how'd you stay together? She said, well, there's no secret. I said, okay, we'll figure this out. I'm a counselor. I can figure it out. So we're sitting on her front porch. I'm in the, rock, in the, uh, the, the, the swing, drinking my iced tea. I said, walk me through a normal week. She said, well, we'd get up for church on Sunday, and we'd have breakfast together. We'd go to church together. We'd come home and do chores together. She said, at night, we really did do that thing, you know, good night, you know, John Boy and Elizabeth and Jim Bob. She said, the house was small, you know, so we said good night to each other. In the morning, we'd get up and we'd do our chores before breakfast, before the kids would go to the one-room schoolhouse, just literally a, a baseball throw away from their house, just across a little gravel road. Before we got to Wednesday, I understood the secret of her family's success. They did everything together. Lucy and Ricky lost each other. They had nothing to hold them together. No faith. They had fame, popularity. They had money. They had power. They had stuff. But they just didn't do life together. One of the great things about a church like this is you can do life together. God never meant for us to be alone, ever. In fact, the first thing that the Bible says, the first negative emotion in the Bible, God looks down in the Garden of Eden. Everything's perfect, and in a perfect world, I'm guessing, you know, the, the Gators always win or the Dallas Cowboys always win in a perfect world, right? You know, I'm a, I'm a frustrated Cowboys fan. On Thanksgiving, I always watch, you know, to see who they're going to lose against this year. But I still love the Cowboys. In a perfect world, God looked down and saw, wow, here's Adam and he's alone. That's not good. Man, that's not good. Because God designed us to be in relationship. Not train wrecks. Not roommates. Real relationships. So when I think about a real relationship, I want to give you some of the basic principles that will make a real relationship work. And the number one principle, no matter what your background is, the number one principle is to tell the truth. Now, when I say no matter what your background is, God builds a system in the Bible, and he does it back in Genesis. And he has a guy named Abraham, who has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has not one, Jacob has 12 sons, one daughter, 13 kids. And so God builds his entire system. The tribes of Israel are built around Jacob's sons. Here's the part most people forget. Jacob, four wives. Four wives. Wow. And you thought you had drama. (laughs) And can you imagine... That also means when you have people like Joseph, who a big chunk of the book of Genesis is about, Joseph had not one stepmother, three stepmoms. He could have been a whole Disney animated series by himself, because in those Disney movies, they like to make the stepmom the monster. 
or, or they like to just kill the mom. I don't know what it is with the Disney people. My daughter works for the Magic Kingdom, but it seems like they just have this thing with moms. So it's either a stepmom is the villain or the mom. I mean, think about it. Cinderella's mom, dead. You know, Princess, you know, I mean, Ariel, the little mermaid, mom, dead. Snow White's mom, dead. When you start to think about it, I mean, it seems like every mom, you know, is dead. You know, Belle, you know, Beauty and the Beast, mom, dead. <laughs> Bambi's mom, boom, shot. <laughs> what is this company's deal with moms? It's like, you know, I know, hi, I'm Bambi's mom. No, you're breakfast, boom. <laughs> Man, and Bambi's standing there watching the whole thing go down. Bambi's in therapy for life after that my gosh. God builds a system because you thought you had it bad. Joseph had three stepmothers. Count them, three. But God builds his whole system on this incredibly dysfunctional family. And that gives me great hope as a counselor because you know what it means? No matter how screwed up you think you are, and I know the person next to you is thinking, pretty screwed up, right? <laughs> Don't smile. See, you can't smile like that. No matter how bad you think your past is, Jacob's is pretty messed up. <laughs> Jacob's is really messed up. Four women, and the one he is smitten with is a girl named Rachel. She gives him two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. But she is not a well-balanced, stable human being. I mean, she's, she's, she's extremely self-centered, beautiful, Every record you see about Rachel, you'll see she's beautiful. But it's almost like she works more on her outside beauty than she does on who she is. She worships idols. She steals them from her father. She lies. She connives. She plots. She absolutely manipulates her husband, and he's so smitten with her. It's a train wreck relationship. And when I think about train wreck relationships, these are some of the quotes to tell if you're in a train wreck relationship. I mean, if, if you're with someone and they're saying things like this, then you know you're with the wrong person. Um, uh, I love it. There's a fine line between cuddling and holding somebody down so they can't get away from you. <laughs> you're such a good friend that if we were on a sinking ship together and there was only one life jacket, I'd miss you heaps and I'd think of you often. <laughs> Always borrow money from a pessimist. They won't expect it back. How about this one? Um, uh, it never hit a man with glasses. Hit him with a baseball bat. I mean, she's that kind of a person. She's a really vindictive human being. She's a train wreck relationship. Then he's got two roommate kind of relationships. Uh, Billa and, and, and Zilpha, they each give him two sons apiece. They're just roommates. They give him children. They take care of things around his house. We don't ever see that he even has conversations with them. It's just roommates. And then there's this woman named Leah who doesn't get a lot of credit. She gives him seven children, six sons, one daughter. And here's the part I want you to see. It was a real relationship. It went the distance. In Genesis chapter 49, when he knows he's dying, he gives each of his sons the blessing, which is an amazing Jewish tradition. My parents have done it with me. It's where they, they lay hands on you and they say, I bless you, my son. I bless you, my daughter. 
I'm your mom and I give you this blessing. I'm your dad and I give you this blessing. It's extremely powerful. My friend John Trent wrote a whole book about it called The Blessing. Really a powerful concept. And so as he's giving his adult sons the blessing, he says, oh, by the way, when I die, Joseph, I want you to bury me with Leah. She was the wife. She was the one. She was the real relationship. And when you think about a real relationship, here's, here's a guy that had four different women, and yet the one thing that you won't see in the Old Testament or the New is, is, is somebody being critical. You don't see God being critical. You see God telling the truth. There's an even better example. It happens in John chapter 4. The woman at the well, she had been married not four times. She'd been married and divorced five times. That's like the equivalent today. This is 2,000 years ago. Today, that's like the equivalent of being married and divorced maybe a hundred times. I mean, it's just like she just didn't, you know, she, she just couldn't pick them. You know, it's like somebody who walks into a country bar, you know, and they've got the radar, and they can pick the most dysfunctional person there. But psychologically, what it says is, I'm just looking for a guy to meet my needs. That's not new, and that's not 2,000 years ago. That's why there are still country bars. That's why there are still people who say, you know what? I was in a relationship, and it was terrible, and I broke up, but I'm just going to go find another relationship. I'm going to find somebody. I call it the BBD, the bigger, better deal. I'm going to just find somebody that's going to solve that emptiness inside. And that somebody, the woman at the well met. His name was Jesus. And he's sitting at the well, and as he's sitting down, he said, hey. She said, you wanted something to drink? And he said, John chapter 4, verse 10, he said, you know what? Regular water, if you drink it, you'll get thirsty again. But I have living water. And she said, really? Think Silver Springs. She's thinking an artesian well of just unlimited water. And so part of her is thinking, you don't have to work for it. I mean, it's a lot of work. I've been to that well. It's a lot of work. If you've ever worked a well, it's a lot of work. And she says, what? Living water? I, I want this living water. Where do I get living water? He said, I am the living water. She'd been married and divorced five times, was living with a guy, just trying to make rent. Don't falter for that. And the greatest thing that you'll see in John 4, Jesus did not judge her. He didn't criticize her. He didn't attack her. He didn't make her feel bad because she'd had so many failed relationships. All he did was to say, you know what you really need? You know what you really need? It's living water. And, and I'm that living water. Real relationships cannot work without living water. If you take Christ out, it can't work. I didn't say doesn't work. I said can't work. It's just a matter of time to see who's the most selfish or who gives up the soonest. If you take God out of the equation, we're all selfish, insecure, needy human beings. Well, except me, of course. Uh, at least that's what I tried when, when I was first a speaker for Focus on the Family, had a, a radio talk show, a television show. I'm on PBS. I'm on Fox. And my wife would say something, and I remember early in our marriage, I would say, honey, <laughs> I'm kind of a national expert, and um, I can tell you that's really not how you would want to do that, you see. And she would say things that, uh, well, I won't repeat here, um, but she would you know, promptly remind me how that she didn't care what the New, you know, I mean, I mean, the New York Times said or the Wall Street Journal. I would say, you know, I mean, er, this early in the marriage before I, before I learned better. You know, it's, 
it's the idea of like, you know, you tell somebody something and then, you know, I mean, I would tell her something that I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't see her for a few days. But after about three days, this eye would open up just enough. I could start to see her a little bit, right? Because <laughs> I would say, you know, I'm a national expert. I know this stuff. I've read thousands of books. And she would say, you don't know squat. <laughs> if you just go in human wisdom, all you're going to have is who's the best arguer. I have slept in the back seat of a car because I'm too cheap to pay in spring for a motel. It's like, if you're not leaving, I'm leaving because I'm not staying in this house with you. Then she said, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. I went out, slept in a car, rolled the windows down, the mosquitoes about ate me alive. Next morning, I thought, maybe I'm not quite the expert I thought I was because, man, I itch. Being able to know that selfish people, and that friend that wrote the book, The Blessing, John Trent, sat down with Sheila and I pretty early in our marriage. I think it's probably while we're still here because he reminded us in a counseling session, here's how you make a relationship work. Because if you're just going with, you know, who's got the strongest opinion, it kind of depends on the argument. Who's the best person at arguing? And since the majority of people in our country are more introverted, extroverts kind of get their way. It doesn't mean that they're the smartest at all. It just means they're the loudest. You know, it may be, it's, it's why some people, some people appear very bright until you get closer, and then you go, no, not so much, actually. <laughs> he sat down and he said, hey, what are you guys building this on? Because if a relationship is built on a promise to each other, listen to me, it will fail. We're flawed, selfish, insecure human beings. All we can do is hurt each other. But if I base it on a promise I made here, if I say, you know what, I'm going to mess this up. Jesus, help me. Give me living water so I don't have a thirst inside that my wife could never meet anyway. We live in a culture where people think, you know what, if you could just get the right guy or just get the right girl, and then beyond relationships, if you can just get the right house and get the right car and get the right toys, then you'll be happy. No, no, no. Unless you get living water. You're just going to have a thirst inside that nothing else can fill. That thirst is only filled with Jesus. Sitting on her front porch, Mrs. Hamner told me about their faith in Christ, how that got them through the Great Depression when they had no money, when things were being repossessed. But they had each other, and they had their faith in Christ. So when you think about it, if you made a promise to God and it's not going well, hey, your life is like mine. Take it up with God instead of expecting your mate to meet needs that they maybe never could meet anyway. God never designed your marriage to solve all your problems. He designed it as a relationship that would be so unique. The Apostle Paul called it a mystery that when people would say, how do they make it work? That it would give us the single best way to talk about our faith because there's no other way to explain how it works. And people would go, wow, I want whatever you have. And we could say, well, good, let me tell you how to find living water, because this is how our relationship stays together. This guy named Bob Benson started the Benson Music Company. When he was dying with cancer, he was looking around his house. Kids were grown and gone. They'd had five kids. And he walked through the house when you're dying, I mean, what do you think about? 
And he said his heart was always filled to overflowing with joy. Because even though the kids were grown and gone, stable lives of their own, he said, I would look at you know, the, the house and it was in disrepair at that point. And he said, but I would stop and I would listen. And he said, I would hear laughter in the walls. The laughter of kids playing board games, the laughter of Christmases and Thanksgivings and birthdays and graduations and first dates and proms. And he said, I would sit and I would listen and I would remember that our family, our family stayed together. It was because of our faith in God and our commitment to stay together. But he said, I was never lonely when I was facing that because I could always hear the laughter in the walls. If the walls at your place could talk, would there be laughter? Would there be singing? Would there be joy? Would there be giggles and tickles and fun? Or if the walls, if the walls at your place could talk, would it be the most embarrassing thing you could imagine and you would be mortified if anybody found out? I believe, I believe that if you don't have living water and if the walls could talk, you'd just be embarrassed because we're just flawed humans. But if you add living water to it and it fills the deepest needs of your heart, you could have people come and they would hear the laughter in the walls. I'm here today to tell you that Jesus Christ changed my life. Jesus Christ changed our marriage. Jesus Christ changed everything. He gave us a real relationship. No train wreck, no roommates, just real. Let's pray that we all have that. Father, thank you for these friends and the opportunity to be together. I'm so grateful for this church, what it stands for. And Father, for an opportunity to be able to say at the end of a series on covenant marriage that you are the living water. You're what makes a real relationship. No train wreck, no roommate, just real. That's what I pray for all of us, Father. Starting here, starting now, that people would be able to see our relationships so differently that they would say, I don't know what makes you guys tick, but I want it. And we would say the only thing that kept us together wasn't chemistry, it was Christ. That's my prayer, Father. I lay it before you with expectation of the lives and the stories and the laughter in the walls that will change because of our time here together today. In Christ's holy name I pray, amen. Pastor.